0: We're still continuing through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians will be in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. Last week we began to see some of Paul's attitude towards suffering. He knew that his suffering was for the growth of the church and the growth of God's kingdom and for the church's comfort and salvation. And because of this he's willing to endure it and his hope is unshaken. Then he humbly, at the end of uh, the text last week, he humbly asks for prayer from the church. The church that caused much of his suffering, he asks them to pray for him. Now he's going to actually address the accusations that were made against him. Namely, we'll see that he had told the church that he would come visit them, and then he was unable to do that. And his enemies in the church use this to basically say that he's unreliable, untrustworthy, and doesn't take his work seriously. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 4. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 12. For our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything, other men, what you read and understood, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did, not, did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, Our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we would with you for your joy. We work with you for your joy. And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Amen. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God truly will stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray in Jesus' name that every word out of my mouth would be correct and glorify you. And that we would receive your word with joy. We would apply it to our lives and embrace it with our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would indeed open our minds to understand the truth of your scripture. And that it would be impressed upon us, on our minds and our hearts, that we would be changed. That you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So the enemies of the church, had a, of him in the church, had accused Paul of being unreliable untrustworthy this is in verse 17 we see this coming out he says was I vacillating in the Greek this is literally was I taking it lightly when I said that I would come visit do I make my plans according to the flesh i.e. in a worldly way ready to say yes and no at the same time is that how I do things We see that far from being unreliable and untrustworthy, Paul had the church in mind the entire time. And this is also going to come out in the text. But he says, even if he did anything wrong, the fact remains that Christ will never fail. And all of his promises are yes. You may think I've broken a promise, but all of Christ's promises are yes. And amen. That's the title of the sermon, Yes and Amen. I'm going to cover five points fairly quickly. First, we're going to see that because of what God has done, Paul can live transparently before the church and before everyone. Transparent living. Secondly, he can also speak clearly. Why is that? And he gives us three reasons why. First, and the third point, God's faithfulness. The fourth point, because of the promises of God being so sure and certain. And the fifth point, because God has purchased him. He's owned by God. And for all these reasons, he can live transparently and he can speak clearly. Because he knows that it's all in God's hands. So let's begin. Looking at verse 12. This is his response, if you remember, to these accusations. He says, Our boasts... Is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, in the Greek, literally, in holiness and godly sincerity? He's saying he's lived transparently before the church, he's not been hiding anything. His boast is that his conscience is clean. He uses the word boast not because he's actually boasting, but this was how the, the false teachers in the church of Corinth acted. They boasted about their eloquence and their ability to preach well and speak well. It was part of their culture to listen to prepared speeches. Not just Christians, but the whole culture of Corinth. That was, it was their entertainment. And they boasted that they spoke so well, but that Paul really couldn't speak well. So he's using this word, ironically, he's saying he's boasting not in his abilities as a speaker or a preacher. He's boasting that he has a clean conscience before God. And he refuses to boast in anything except what God has done for him. Compared to the work of God in his life, we know from Philippians and really from all of his letters, he boasts in the Lord. He even boasts in his weakness, but he doesn't boast in his own ability. Remember in Philippians, he said, whatever was to my profit, in other words, all the things I've done in my life, whatever was to my profit, I count as a loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. I consider them rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So here he's boasting that he behaved in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity. I have joy in this situation, almost, he's saying, that, that I acted with integrity. I didn't deceive you. There was no duplicity in my words or in my thoughts even. I was being sincere. So, of course, this does two things to the church in Corinth. People that are hearing this, who do act in a worldly way, they're convicted by his, his own pure, um, sincere motives. And his straightforward meaning of his words. That's why he says next, it's not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Earthly wisdom should remind you of all the ways that earthly people, worldly people, do things in the world. Not like Christians. Not like people who have the Holy Spirit in their lives, in their hearts. Worldly people strive to use their words... To squirm out of things. And their motives are always hidden. There's always a mask. You don't know what they're getting at. This should not be us. Reminded me the first time I was aware that politicians often lie. The very first time. I was a young man. Bill Clinton was president. And he was accused, if you remember, actually it was during the the race. He was accused of smoking marijuana in college. Anyone remember this? And he famously said, well, I do remember having a marijuana cigarette in my hand and putting it to my lips, but I didn't inhale. And we all just thought, what? You didn't inhale? And then later he's accused of sexual misconduct with a 20-year-old intern in the Oval Office. You remember his answer? I did not have sex with that woman. So his words were very measured, right? He's He said probably something that was true. He did not have sex with that woman. But we know now that there were many, many other women that were part of his life in an unfamiliar way or maybe too familiar way. But his words were used in a worldly way. And this isn't new. It's not new to politicians. It's just worldly It is why politicians are among the least trusted people in America, I would say, because their view of integrity is worldly and everything is done in the most expedient way possible to get through the current trouble. I'm going to say whatever is required. I'm going to say it in such a way that I can't be nailed to the wall because I'm holding my cards all very close. I just need to get through this. It's the most pragmatic way to use your words. Whatever works. That's the worldly way. You always have plausible deniability. Use things that can have multiple meanings, like President Clinton did. But can be somehow seen to be honest. And really the whole guiding principle of a worldly way of using your words is self-interest. You don't trust the world. You don't trust your, your church. You don't trust others. So you just want to protect yourself at all costs. So Paul is saying, I didn't use worldly logic when I told you I was going to come. I didn't use worldly way of reasoning with you. I just simply and sincerely told you what my plans were. And he says, supremely so toward you. In other words, I was with you for 18 months. I started this church. You know me. You know who I am. So supremely. So toward you would I always speak with sincerity and integrity. So he's answering these charges that he's not faithful, that he's not trustworthy, or that he's unthinking, or he doesn't take this seriously enough. Certainly for a minister of the gospel, your dealings must be filled with integrity. Uh, The gospel is at stake. So Paul knew this. But not only ministers, we all, we all need to be this way as Christians. Our speech, our attitudes, it's not just ministers. You remember in Ephesians 4.12, Paul says that it's the job of a minister to equip the saints of God for ministry. We all have the same task, just applied in different ways. So integrity is important for each one of us. And I think this is an important point of application. To look at the words of your mouth and analyze, is this the way Paul spoke? Am I speaking with simplicity and godly sincerity? In the old days we used to say, do you say what you mean and mean what you say? That's a really helpful phrase. Or do you have secret agendas? Or do you have worldly ways of manipulating situations and looking at people and relationships in a way to protect your reputation? Or do you speak out of expediency just to get past the current trouble? Brother and sister, I think we all, like Paul, should strive to have no deceit in our mouths at all. To speak clearly and simply with each other. No selfish interests, no hidden agendas, no worldly wisdom. These things are not godly. Our boast and our joy should be in honoring God with our words, with our integrity. I like old westerns. And you remember, like it doesn't register, I think, with the current culture. But you remember in an old Western, the surest way to get into a gunfight? What do you have to do? You call someone a liar. You call me a liar. And all of a sudden you know there's about to be a gunfight. Why is that? The culture used to understand that your integrity was the last thing you ever had in life. They can take everything else away from you, but they can never take your integrity, your honesty. So to call someone a liar was, those were fighting words. You were going to die. Because you, you, you were not supposed to question someone's integrity. So important was it. There was a time, of course, my grandfather, my great-grandfather told me. Still it exists, I'm sure, in places, probably even here in South Green County, depending on who you're talking to, but... Your integrity was so valued that your word really was all that was required. It was almost an insult to be asked to sign a contract. I told you I would do this. I will do it. Well, where does this spring from? This springs from Scripture. This is the way godly people live. Our word really is our bond. And we would rather lose everything than break my word, break my promise. I would rather face all kinds of discomforts. I would rather pay any price and suffer any loss than to be dishonest. Paul is appealing to this biblical notion that we should be people of integrity. That this is how we should all live. And Paul's saying, I live like this. I lived with godly sincerity before you. I told you exactly what I planned to do. The reality is we all fail. As James said, we all fail in what we say from time to time. We do. But the difference is we're not called to be perfect. We're called to recognize this. And if you have a problem with how you speak to other people, if there really is some mask that you put on when you talk to people, you need to recognize it and pray to God for help. Because true integrity and thought, word, and deed really is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Living transparently, if you can do this, it's a gift from God. Because it's not in our nature to do that. We do want to protect ourselves. It's a fallen characteristic. But on the flip side, living transparently is so freeing. There's nothing you're hiding. You never have to wonder what you should or should not say when it refers to your own self. You never have little hidden secrets that you have to make sure no one finds out about. It's just a freeing way to live. And with wisdom, you can do this as well. It's only possible with the Holy Spirit because of Christ. But this is what Paul says. This is how I lived. Verse 13, he says basically the same thing about his writing. He said, we weren't writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand. He said, everything I wrote was what I wrote. What I wrote is what I wrote, and it should be read plainly. Talking of a previous letter where he told them he was coming. What you read you should understand, because my motives were godly. And he says, someday you will actually recognize this, and you'll boast about me as I boast about you. Some of you might not understand this, he says, until the day of the Lord. When all of the thoughts and intents of our heart will be laid bare, Hebrews 4.13, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed on the day of the Lord. And we should strive to live as if the day of the Lord were always present for us. One of the wisest pieces of advice I ever got was when I was an officer in the Air Force and they said, Never type an email to anyone or send a message to anyone that you don't want displayed on the front page of the New York Times. I thought, that's actually really helpful. Not that I would say anything rude or impertinent or disrespectful in a government email, but it really is helpful to remember that we live our lives open before the world as Christians. We don't have ulterior motives. We live as if Christ were returning today, not with worldly wisdom, not with selfish interests. And Paul just tells them someday you will all know the truth. If you don't know it now, on the day of the Lord, you will understand. So live transparently as Paul did. Secondly, we see that Paul also speaks clearly. He gives a clear explanation of what he was doing. This is verses 15 and 16. He's telling them, I. I wanted to go and visit you before I went to Macedonia, and then on my way home, and then I wanted some people from the church to follow me to Judea. This was the plan. Sorry it didn't work out. But this was the plan. I really wanted to do this. Why did I change my mind? He tells us in verses 23 through the first part of chapter 2. He says in verse 23, As God is my witness, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again. I didn't want to make another painful visits. He recognized that things weren't exactly right and that he would have to come with a rod rather than with a comforting staff. And he chose to avoid that particular conflict for the moment. They doubted his love, and that's why I said in verse 4 of chapter 2 that you need to remember I did this because I love you. The great love that I have for you. Don't question my motives as God is my witness. If this isn't true, may God take my life, is basically what he said. I came to this decision for your own good. And they should believe him. Verse 17, of course, this is where he addresses the actual charge. That he was vacillating or taking it lightly. That he did all this with a worldly perspective of manipulating the situation in some way. And he says, I don't say yes and no. I don't speak out of both sides of my mouth, if you will. So Paul is actually taking some time to defend himself. So let's talk about, for a moment, just defending ourselves. Because certainly there is a time to stand up and defend yourself. There is. Paul understood as a minister of the gospel and as apostle that his integrity being questioned was the same thing as God's word being questioned, especially as the one who delivered the gospel to the Gentiles. And he knew that this could not work. He could not be seen as a deceiver, a manipulator, a liar. And yet, have that not affect the word of God, the gospel that he preached. So for this reason, and this reason alone, he chooses to address these accusations against him because the gospel was impugned and he's proving his innocence and he's calling God to witness. So this isn't a selfish or worldly self-interest. It's not like Paul is so sensitive about his honor that he has to stand up and do these things. The gospel was the key. And I think this is instructive for us as well. Remember we read in the Psalm 62, this is David being attacked and he was attacked often. Rarely did David stand up and fight for himself. He always trusted God. But the world says differently. The world says, stand up for your rights. Stand up for your honor. Guard and protect your reputation. Never let any slight or impugning of your dignity or your integrity pass. Never admit any mistakes. Never show any weakness. The world says, argue for your rightness at every point. Fight for your reputation. This isn't what Paul's doing. The gospel was at stake. And we don't have to defend ourselves against every slight and every wound of our pride, every question of our motives, our integrity, every false accusation or gossip or slander. You don't have to defend yourself if it's just you that's wounded. There's two reasons. First, because God is your advocate. God is your defender. That's Psalm 62. It's throughout the Psalms. This is how we can turn the other cheek with joy. Because our reputation and our honor depends on God. Not on our own defense. Who can bring any charge against us? Who can bring any lasting charge against the elect? God will protect us. So it's not that the Christian never stands up to defend himself. I mean, if an armed intruder comes into your house, I hope you shoot him. But... When it comes to our reputation, because of the gospel of Jesus, we don't have to fight. We don't have to stand up and protect ourselves, our own honor. It's all in God's hands. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ is threatened, when God's honor is threatened, and you feel some righteous indignation rising up inside you, Because your God has been impugned or blasphemed. That's when you prayerfully consider standing up and being counted. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They would not bow down to a foreign God. They weren't rude. They just told the king they would not do it. I'm not going to do it. They stood up. You remember when Daniel was told that he couldn't pray to anyone? He couldn't pray to anyone but the king. He opened his windows and he prayed to God as he always had. He stood up. And he trusted God to defend his honor and to leave it at that. So it's not that Christians are somehow these cowardly people who don't stand up for themselves. We stand up when it matters. And that's when the gospel is at stake. But our own reputations we leave in God's hands. Secondly, I think the second reason why we don't have to fight for every ounce of honor that we could have in the world or defend ourselves at every turn is because really it's almost always better for the peace of the church. You know, the the people who hurt you the most are often the closest to you. No one can wound me like my wife. She doesn't often. And no one can hurt her like I can. We love each other so much. We're the closest we are to each other. And when she says something that's wounding, it really hurts. Whereas if some stranger said something about me, it wouldn't hurt that much at all. That is a reality. Your family can hurt you much, much more. Your church family can really hurt you as well. But strangers and the farther you get, get out from this sphere of influence that's close to you, the wounds are hardly perceived. But when it comes to the church, it's almost always a better thing. To give the benefit of the doubt and to give it to God. Just put it aside. Just ignore the off-handed comment, the hurtful word or perceived hurtful action or slight, for the sake of the body of Christ. Look at that person as a child of God who had a bad day, and make the decision that whatever that thing was that happened, is in God's hands and leave it and pray for them. And you'll find that as you pray for that person, the heart of offense changes to a heart of love, even if they've really offended you. So I think it's biblically wise in many ways to just strive to be like Paul. And as we'll see, he continues to put up with salts and persecutions of all, time, all kinds, but he often prays for the people that are involved and he tries to strive for unity. However, when the gospel is at stake, he does stand up. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, the gospel's at stake here, guys. You can't say that I'm somehow unfaithful or I'm untrue or I'm untrustworthy in my work as an apostle. It's not going to work. So for us, whatever we do, whether you stand up, whether you sit down, whether you put things aside, whether you... Cover things, covering an offense is a great blessing. Whatever you do, do it in the context of much prayer. So, love always pursues. We should always be pursuing people who hurt us as well. Love never ignores, love always pursues. And we see Paul doing this. He's seeking reconciliation. So, we talked about his transparent living, we talked about his clear speech. Now we'll see that he's trying to bring unity again. He's seeking reconciliation. Verse 18, he talks about the faithfulness of God and how it unites them. He says uh, in verse 18 As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. He says, as surely as God is faithful. Literally in the Greek, it just says, God is faithful. It's, it's probably an oath of some kind. It's like when you, if you've ever been to a courtroom as a witness, you have to put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. You remember that? And what do you do? You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. He's speaking to the highest Appealing to the highest authority. He's bringing God into the picture and all his attributes, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his holiness. And he's saying, as surely as God is God, what I'm saying is true. And this is a key. Notice how quickly he makes the connection between being accused of being unfaithful himself and the trustworthiness of the gospel. And of God. He said, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, is not yes and no. Charles Hodge said, Paul's confidence in the truth of the gospel as he preached it was one with his confidence in God, because he received it from God. So Paul appeals to their knowledge of his ministry with Jesus. They knew that Jesus was not no, but yes for them. Why did they know that? Because God is faithful. So he appeals to God's faithfulness and the uniting gospel of Jesus in the church. The fourth point, we see that his transparency and his clearness are also based on the promises of God. Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Wow. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus for the people of God. It's almost as if he's saying, you want to believe that I'm not faithful or trustworthy? But Jesus Christ is faithful, and he is trustworthy. And he's always yes for his people. All the promises of God find their yes in him, actually. And remember, he's speaking to a Gentile church. So what promises is he talking about? He's talking about all the promises found in the Old Testament that points to a Savior for Israel, a Messiah And they're for the Gentile church? Absolutely. Remember in Galatians, where he says that all of the children of Abraham, physically coming from Abraham, aren't really children of Abraham. The ones who are children of Abraham are the ones that are spiritual children of Abraham by faith. And he speaks in Galatians also of the promise being ours by faith, all the promises. The promise to Adam and Eve. You remember they were promised in Genesis 3.15 Genesis by God. That a redeemer would come and bruise the head of the serpent. Or as Paul said in Romans chapter 16, crush the head of the serpent. And this promise is yes in Jesus. He was the redeemer. He did crush the serpent. When Noah was promised salvation from the wrath of God. This promise is figuratively, as Peter said, made yes for us in Christ. We have been redeemed from the wrath of God. We will not die as the world perished. Abraham was promised that his seed would be a blessing to all the earth, that he would inherit the promised land, that he would have so many descendants they would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. It's yes in Christ for the church, for this Gentile church. How is that? We see all the people grafted in to Abraham. The whole New Testament church and everyone since who has faith in Christ Our descendants, the descendants of Abraham. The promised land is ours. It's an inheritance waiting in heaven for us. And his seed was a blessing to all the earth. Capital S, his seed was Christ. Those promises are yes in Christ. Just one more promise that I love. Ezekiel chapter 36, where the prophet Ezekiel says to Israel, I am coming and I will give you a new heart. I'll take from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll forget all of your iniquity. I'll make you want to love me and serve me. And obey my law. Of course, that promise is yes for us in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does to us. When he regenerates us. When he saves us. And every other promise in the Old Testament. Every other promise in Scripture finds its yes in Jesus Christ. Dr. Douglas Kelly, the brilliant professor from RTS in Charlotte. He says that from Genesis to Revelation... Wherever you find a promise for the good of God's people, it is made yes in Christ Jesus. Which is why Paul goes on to say, we, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why did he say that? Why did he mention uttering an amen to God? Through Jesus we say amen to the glory of God. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Why amen? He just said yes. Amen is a special word. It's interesting. I've, I've worshipped with so many different language groups. I've worshipped in Czechoslovakia. I've worshipped in Ukraine with Russian speakers, with Filipino speakers, with Dutch, with French, with Indian from the Indian continent, India, Indian people with Arabs, and often it's, you're just kind of following along because you don't understand anything. But there's one word I always understood, because it's the same in every church, amen. Amen. You hear it just, a, a cacophony of language that you don't understand, but then you hear, amen. It's a Hebrew word, everyone's speaking Hebrew, whenever you say amen, you're speaking Hebrew. And it just means, so be it. But it's an affirmation that what is said is true. It's not a hopeful word. It's saying, this is true. Amen. It's a word of affirmation. So from Abraham to the end of the world, when people say amen, you're proclaiming the certainty of God's promises. That's what Paul's alluding to. God's character and his faithfulness make every promise sure. So we say amen. At the end of a prayer, when you say amen, it's not like, please, Lord. No, when you say amen, you're saying, as "In as this prayer conforms to your perfect will, and because of Jesus Christ, I know you love your children. I know you will do what's best. I know you will answer this prayer. Amen. It will be so. So for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promises of Jesus Christ, centered his faith were the bedrock of his life, and everything is yes and amen, it's certain, to God's glory. So regardless of what other people say, Paul says, My preaching is faithful. God has established his work. Because I preach Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's never unfaithful. He's never unsteady. He's always faithful and true. So we've seen that this gives Paul the ability to be transparent in his dealings with others, to speak clearly as well. Why? Because of God's faithfulness, because all the promises of God are yes and amen. But finally, the last point, because he's owned by God, the ownership of God. God has adopted him, brought him into his family. Verse 21, he said, It's God who establishes us with you in Christ And has anointed you and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. God is the one who established Paul. God is the one who established everyone in the church in Corinth in Christ. And Christ has anointed them both. Paul's not just saying that he's a minister of the gospel or he's an apostle and he's anointed. He's speaking of the anointing that every believer has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In the evening service, you know we've been going through 1 Samuel. And what happened to David when Samuel was told to make David the next king? He anointed him. He poured oil on his head. And a very special thing happened. The Spirit of God rushed upon David. All of us are anointed. In the Greek, this is actually a really special sentence. Look at verse 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. So the Greek word for Christ is Christon. The Greek word for anointed is Chrisos. Christ means anointed one. So Paul's saying, God established us with you in the anointed one and has anointed us. That's really sweet. It's a special thing. We are anointed. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This anointing is setting us apart by the Holy Spirit for a special service. We are God's own children. As Jesus told Nicodemus, we are born again by the Spirit. Verse 22, he says, And he puts his seal on us and has given his Spirit in our hearts as guarantee, literally as a deposit or down payment. Notice, too, he's, he's, he's speaking these words to bring unity to the church. He's told them why he did what he did. He's, he's addressed the accusations, but now he's drawing everyone back together by showing that we who are in Christ are all sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what is a seal? A seal indicates ownership. In the Roman world, if you were a slave, your owner would put a seal upon you indicating ownership. Either a tattoo or some kind of other permanent mark. And Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is our seal. God owns us. Isaiah 43.1 Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, God says to his children. Revelation 7, we see that John sees the servants of God being sealed with a mark. Revelation 7 verse 3 Do not harm this earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Oh, what about the mark of the beast? Is that a real mark too? Well, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's all just showing who owns you, who owns you. And for the servants of God, we're owned by the Holy Spirit. We're owned by the Almighty God. Or, or, or 2 Timothy 2.19 God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Ephesians 1.13 In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your, your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you are serving God, you have been sealed by God with His Holy Spirit, who lives in your heart. It's, it's an amazing thing to consider. And He says that He has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment, as a deposit. you remember when you had to, to put a down payment down for the first house you bought, or any house you bought probably? What did that down payment do? It ensured that that house would be yours when it came time to actually make the purchase until closing it held it for you and the new testament understanding of this word is exactly the same paul's saying that the holy spirit is god's down payment it's his deposit his guarantee that you are his and someday he's going to have all of you in heaven so we have the spirit of the living god in our hearts in our souls romans 8 says if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're His. If the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, then you don't belong to Him. Hodge says, God establishes or makes His people firm and secure in their union with Christ. How? By anointing and sealing and giving us the deposit of the Spirit. And the Spirit seals us for Christ. Hodge goes on to say that the only evidence that we have the Spirit is that we act in such a way that reflects this. The fruit of the Spirit. We have true love for others. We have joy. Even difficult situations, we have joy. We have peace in our heart when there's nothing around but chaos. We have patience with the feelings of others. We have kindness in our dealings with everyone. Our meekness and gentleness before God and man. Self-control in our fleshly appetites and in our words. If you see God doing all this in an increasing measure in your life, you know that this is not of yourself. That's the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. I'm not kind in myself. And I see God making me more and more kind. Praise God. Praise God for my great salvation. That's the Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. That He is responsible for this change. But if you find none of this characterizes your life, if you don't really love people, If you're always finding yourself angry or frustrated, there's no joy or peace. Rather, there's just frustration and anxiety in life. If you see that you really are in your heart impatient and unkind and argumentative and prideful or everything else. You can have no confidence, really, in these promises. Whatever you say you believe, why is that? Because when the Holy Spirit invades your heart, everything changes. You love Jesus. You love what He loves. You hate what He hates. And it's not a burden. It's not in my my life this big burden to try to be joyful. I just find that I am. Or I'm trying to be truthful and it's so hard. I just find that I love the truth. So let's conclude with Verse 24, we don't want to lord it over your faith, he says. What he's saying is that he's not responsible for their sanctification. He's not responsible for their faith. God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives faith. Rather, he works with them for their joy. Isn't that sweet? He's the Apostle Paul. These people have accused him. They don't value him at all. And he's saying, I'm working with you. I remember there was a four-star general and he was talking to me when I was just a lieutenant colonel. And he said, Colonel Steele, I just want to work with you on this. And I thought, work with me? I just do whatever you tell me. But it just brought me into his, brought me into his life in a special way. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm working with you. In other words, before the cross, the ground is completely level. There's no super, super saints. We all come to Christ as brothers and sisters because of Jesus. And if God is the author of your salvation, you've been sealed and saved by the Holy Spirit, and you will find that you can live transparently and with integrity by the fruit of the Spirit always in your life, and all the promises of God are yours. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your promises on our behalf accomplished through Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have brought your Holy Spirit into our hearts as a guarantee, as a deposit. And our spirits know that our lives have changed. Our spirit bears witness with your spirit that we're your children. Because our lives are different. Because we can live without fear. We can live without selfish ambition or vain conceit. We can live in such a way as to be transparent. We love what you love. Whereas before we never did. We pray in Jesus' name that you would help us. You would encourage us and strengthen our hands for your service. That you be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.